to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 19 in particular. I am Max. I am Rich. <laughs> and before we get started, Rich is going to hit us with a little bit of retroactive history. Yes, Jason Zeller wrote and asked if we were aware of an ongoing World War II miniseries called He Who Fights with Monsters that takes place in Nazi-occupied Europe and has a golem as a character. I was, in fact, and am collecting said story as it comes out. This led to a discussion amongst the Weird Warrior podcast staff. Introducing a new element to the show we are going to call the Intel Report, the Intelligence Report, where we'll let you know about other war and or horror comic miniseries slash trade paperbacks that are out there. Maybe some of these will end up on a future special mission episode, but because of sheer size and volume, trades are harder to do justice in a format such as ours. For our first report, two ongoing minis, so keep your eyes open. First up, out. Five issues from AWA, AWA, I don't know how you say that, uh, script by Rob Williams, art by Will Conrad. In the waning days of World War II, a desperate Nazi officer unearths an ancient force of evil he hopes will turn the tide of battle, a vampire. To test the power of a secret weapon, he turns it loose on a group of unsuspecting allied POWs. That's up to Nokona a Comanche code talker, to communicate with the vampire to discover what it wants. And this is the kind of animalistic vampire Max likes. He goes, he'd be all in for this one, folks. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> and the aforementioned He Who Fights With Monsters. I think it's five issues. I couldn't find a, an issue tally. Published by Ablaze. A story by Francesco Artabani. Art by Werther Del Adera. I don't know, you try reading this stuff. I know that guy, <laughs> Werther Del Adera. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it any differently than that, but that's the artist for one of my favorite series, Something is Killing the Children, is where I discovered that artist, and yes. it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, the, uh, that is uh, a very obvious crossover that they mentioned that in, in, uh, in this title. Prague is oppressed by the Nazis, and the population lives in terror while resistance forces attempt to organize in the shadows. Only one hope feeds the struggle, one that rests on the fragile foundations of an ancient, monstrous legend. Spoiler alert, we already know it's a golem. Both of these stories take place in Czechoslovakia, which is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, you don't get too many comics that are uh, set in Czechoslovakia and not a whole lot of modern comics that use a golem as a plot point. So very cool. I haven't checked this out yet, but I have to now. And as far as AWA... That is the print that the publisher started by Axel Alonso from Marvel. He used to be like, um, I think editor in chief over at Marvel. So those are just his initials. I'm pretty sure AWA. So, uh, that's that's my little nugget of uh, info on that publisher. So before we get cracking into um, the, the issue, yeah, before we, <laughs> there's no cracking in this issue, I'm pretty sure, because um, I have read it. I, I did my job. Um, before we see if I did my job or not, we're going to take a little podcast promo break, and then we'll be back to look at the issue at hand. Hey, Ryan. I know we're taking a break from Batman Nightcast, but I've been thinking about the Nightfall storyline where Jean-Paul Valley temporarily took over the role of Batman. 
I see where you're going with this. If you were ever paralyzed, I would be honored to take care of Cindy and your kids. Uh, no, that's not where I was going. I was thinking about all the many characters who have filled in for Bruce Wayne as Batman over the years. Dick Grayson, Tim Drake. Commissioner Gordon, for some reason. Yeah, that did happen. Anyway, on the subject of temporary replacements. Your son Andrew is going to take over Supermates? No, focus on Batman. Why is this so hard? While we're away from Nightcast for a while longer, someone could come in and do a Batman-related show for the Fire & Water Network. Well, I know Paul Keene loves the Batman Family comic book. I've seen Sean M. Myers post a few things about Batman Family, too. Do you think they'd... We'll do it! For those of you who aren't familiar with the series, Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man-Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. So you're all invited to the Batman Family Reunion podcast, taking over the Batman Nightcast feed. Coming in January to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This could be the sensational podcast find of 2022. And we are back. So, as we said up top, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 19 this time around. And Rich, as usual, is going to hit you with the cover detail. Art by Louise Dominguez. Who else? The yellow Weird War Tales is beautifully matched on the orange sun and sky of the cover. A terrified American paratrooper with a Thompson submachine gun hides behind a gravestone on the foreground. His chute is out in the open next to him, and three enemy motorcyclists with skulls instead of faces under their helmets ride through the graveyard bearing down on Cover date, November 1973, date of release on sale in August 21st, 1973. Uh, I can't, don't see any killjoy on this one. A little comments and commendations. I'll be honest, it took me a while to notice the soldier was a paratrooper. The chute looked like a rock, but then I noticed the straps on the chute and the chin strap on his helmet. I like the dust of the motorcycle's tires are kicking up too. The cover gives you this vague Ichabod Crane and the Ghost of Sleepy Hollow vibe. Or did I completely miss the chance at a Ghost Rider reference? First appearance, Marvel Spotlight number five from August 1972. Hmm. Actually, we can just wait until issue 56 right here, the cover of which definitely gives you that vibe. It'll be in the album. Yeah, and our episode about issue 56 should only be several years away. <laughs> so, you know, just hold on tight. <laughs> As remember for, <laughs> yeah, yeah sure as for uh for me i like this cover a lot better than the one for the previous issue the fact that it's a full bleed image and not letterboxed helps as does the presence of at least some actual background detail which is also quite atmospheric uh, owing in part to the i think rather bold usage of orange and yellow tones on the cover of a horror book it's like bright and sunny, you know, maybe a little, you know, approaching sunset kind of colors out there. Yeah, I just think this one works really well. I like the fact that the guys on the bikes, too, are kind of these big, beefy figures, but then they have little skulls for heads. But you said Ghost Rider vibe, and I was thinking um, those like monster hot rod 
models that gave me a little vibe of that with like the strange deformed pilot just from the body again. is this big and this head is yeah. this big. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not that drastic, but these are these are not like svelte looking people on motorcycles, man. These are like these the guys people. have their leather on. Yeah, these are the people you would see at Americade, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, they 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 eat their cheeseburgers and whatnot. So <laughs> So yeah, cover is 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 just right back on track. I loved it, and um, I'm gonna let you. Uh, since I see we're gonna have a guest appearance by your friend Rod Serling coming up, we're gonna jump into chapter one, and Rich is gonna tell you how it all kicks off. Chapter one: the platoon that wouldn't die. Six pages. Story by Arnold Drake. Art by Jerry Talayak. Both throughout the book, as we mentioned in last episode's teaser. Unlike other issues that were full-length stories that had very definitive chapters, this truly is a full-length story with the same characters throughout. It's divided into three chapters, which works great to break up our reading of the synopsis, which goes as such. Any good general, from Caesar to Eisenhower, would tell you that war is a game of logistics, supplies, not just food and ammo and gasoline, but the most irreplaceable supply of them all, warm, moving bodies. Irreplaceable, that is, unless you know the secret of the platoon that wouldn't die. Equipped with motorcycles, the elite Nazi Blue Bolt platoon parachutes behind US lines on a raid. They gun down a burial detail and start searching through the pile of German bodies for something. Finding one body in particular, they place it in a casket trailer on one of the bikes and take off towards a nearby airfield, where they commandeer a transport plane and return to German lines. 36 hours later at Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, Harry, the actor Nielsen, that's a weak nickname, is summoned by the warden and briefed on German activities by Colonel Clarence Hagen, the body of the Blue Bolt commander, Major Bruker, Bruckner, Major Bruckner, has been reclaimed by the Germans on that raid. But Bruckner had already been killed last year in Russia, and the year before that in Africa. If the Germans had some miracle drug to bring the dead back to life, the Allies had to know about it. Nielsen was of German extraction, a con man, and an actor. If anyone could do it, it's him. The president will even release him from his 20-year sentence if Nielsen does the job. Nielsen ups the bargain to a full pardon, but agrees. Corporal Schlosser is the first blue bolt to be taken alive. On the same raid, Bruckner was reclaimed. Nielsen takes a few days to study a recording of Schlosser's voice. A week later, in France, Schlosser, quote, quote, escapes from an allied POW camp under fire from the guards, no less, and returns to German lines. The blue bolts are glad to have him back, toasting, blue bolts never die. End of chapter one. Killjoy. Yeah, the usual no swastika armband field gripe throughout the entire book. Also on pages three and four, the U.S. aircraft the Germans steal to make their getaway. I have no idea what the hell those tri-motor jobs are supposed to be. They kind of look like Northrop YC-125 Raiders, but if that is what they are, they first flew in December of 1946. So that's wrong. Hell, one's a tail dragger and the other one has tricycle landing gear. Pick a style, Jerry. Comments and commendations. I liked the skeletal death in the blue bolt uniform on page one. 
the narrator with the inventory book. The whole splash panel is pretty cool too, actually. Uh, two fleeing GIs returning the fire of the parachuting blue bolts. The windmill in the background is a nice touch. Okay, I'm interested in the story. Let's see where it goes. Also, two issues in a row where there's a German named Schlosser. What's next? Uh, Shropshire Slosher? Hmm? <laughs> if anybody gets that out there. Shropshire Slosher. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody out there gets that, uh, we know how old you are. All right. So <laughs> men um, of a certain age, people of a certain age. So for my comments and commendations, I will say uh, the German accent spoken by the actor merits at least a slight nudging of the old comics man bell. But I really like the feeling of this uh, opening chapter. And I also add that, you know, you said that they nicknamed the actors a bit on the nose. And of course it is. Even while I was reading it, I was thinking I would have stretched for the semi semi rhyme of Nielsen, the chameleon or something. But you, I guess you got to get to the point when you're writing short little comic book chapters. So they just made it clear he was the actor. To me, it actually, this first chapter actually seemed like a movie from the 70s when things could just get strange on a moment's notice. Wisecracks and gallows humor abounded and also very serious violence could happen at any time and on a budget. <laughs> Plus just the sheer weirdness of a paratrooping Nazi biker unit raiding a cemetery had my attention right away. As for the art, it's it's Jerry T. I love it. You all know that, but I got to call something out. So I'll go with the first panel on page two with the Nazis getting their motors running on the way to the cemetery. It takes up the whole top row of the page and it just lets Jerry cut loose. The perspective of the uh, the allied soldiers hiding down in the rubble, down a little trail on the right side of the panel, everything, the depth of field, the detail, the kinetic energy, I loved it. And uh, like I said, it's, it's Jerry T, you know I'm a sucker. I didn't notice anything about any planes because that ain't my job. I was having a blast through this whole thing. So chapter one, off to a good start. We're going to head on down the highway to chapter two here, which is called The Fall and Rise of Major Bruckner. It's seven pages long, and it goes a little something like this. Schlosser regales his comrades on his escape from the Americans. As Nielsen tries to casually get info on Major Bruckner, the Major walks in with the announcement of 30 days leave in Berlin for everyone after their next mission. Nielsen comments on how good the Major looks. I saw you hit five or six times with my own eyes. But the Major is skeptical. How could you? You were in a foxhole for most of that action. The Blue Bolt's next mission turns out to be to go after a certain U.S. intelligence officer, Colonel Hagen, who has become far too interested in the Blue Bolts for his own good. Hagen even moved his headquarters close to the front lines to monitor them. The operation is tonight, and Schlosser will be Bruckner's trusted assistant. Nielsen realizes that the Major is suspicious of him, which makes the game all the rougher. The crack German commandos infiltrate U.S. lines that night, and Bruckner and Nielsen surprise Hagen in his quarters. When Hagen lunges for his 45, Bruckner shoots him. Lamenting his lousy luck, Bruckner leaves the room and orders Nielsen to finish Hagen off. The wounded Hagen recognizes Nielsen and tells him to go ahead. He's dead anyway. Nielsen fires. Bruckner congratulates Nielsen as they run back to the perimeter and admits it had been a test. 
but spotlights blaze and the blue bolts come under fire by the American guards. The German platoon takes heavy casualties. Bruckner realizes the day is lost and charges headlong into American fire, taking countless hits until he finally goes down. Sergeant Grebe orders Nielsen to fetch the major's body, reminding him that their primary order was leave none behind. Ducking U.S. fire, Nielsen recovers the body. The major's a lot heavier than he looks, he remarks. After returning to German lines, Nielsen offers to help Grebe take Bruckner to the hospital, but is refused. Nielsen doesn't take no for an answer, though, and slips aboard the ambulance anyway. Instead of the hospital, or even the morgue, the ambulance goes to the Institute for Parapsychology Studies. The men carrying the major's body, awkwardly, without a stretcher, take it to the Caribbean metaphysics room. Nielsen peeks in and sees Haitian witch doctors performing their voodoo rites on Bruckner's body. He's a zombie! <laughs> now, I'll kill Joy a little bit of, the, of our own line there. I don't think they're intended to be Haitian witch doctors. It looks like actual Nazis in Nazi uniform just happening to be wearing uh, like voodoo paraphernalia and masks and stuff. So it's it's Nazis appropriating a voodoo ritual, I think, in that panel. But uh, that notwithstanding, that's, oh, go ahead. Well, that's that's what Nielsen says in the little in the little thought balloon. So he thinks you know maybe they are Nazis wearing Haitian uh, witch doctor garb or something. But in his little thought balloon, who else but the voodoo witch doctors of Haiti? Dun, 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 dun. So, uh, yeah, whatever. yeah, maybe that's why he can fool the Germans so easily is because, like, even he's the actor and he buys into this so quickly. So, everybody, it's like in the Batman 66 show, everyone is incredibly gullible, <laughs> <laughs> which I can get behind, believe me. So, for comments and commendations, I'll say this chapter for me really took the craziness from chapter one that I loved and gave it some candy bars and caffeine. I really dug this chapter. The pace at which the action moved was great. The patter between the Nazi soldiers, the actor, and the major was also written very entertainingly. For art, for a spotlight, I'll call out the final panel on page 13 that we were just talking about with the, vid the, the, the video, the voodoo ritual being performed. And, you know, I, I'm looking at the music sound effects and I'm like, is that boom, ah, ba, boom music being played by that old school record player in the background? Because <laughs> that would just be hilarious. They cranked up the record player and they've got the voodoo drum, you know, hits that they ordered from KTEL or whatever. Obviously it's not KTEL, but come on, I'm from the seventies, you know, that's where you got all those things from. So I love that panel. Uh, I got to also call out the lettering for the title of this chapter. It's super random. It kind of looks like the lettering for the first chapter, but it's even uglier and it really shouldn't work. But I love it. Again, it strikes me as like the title heading in a really cheap 70s movie, just like splashed across the scene, you know? So I'm even more on board at the end of chapter two than I was at the end of chapter one. Okay. If none are to be left behind, why are all the enlisted bullet sponges left behind? Why are they only concerned about the major? I don't know if this is a killjoy or a plot device yet. 1970s comic rears its head when Nielsen mentally refers to Grebe as Sergeant Baby. This chapter is also the first time you get a good look at the blue bolt insignia on the helmet. Page 12, panel 1. Sorry, Jerry. Looks like blue tornado. No sharp angles on it at all. I like panel 3 of the same page where Nielsen is recovering Bruckner's body under, under fire. I'll hop ahead and do a minor ad call out. 
there's a literal full page ad for the Cleveland Institute of Electronics in the middle of the chapter that you're supposed to cut out, fold up, and mail. The reverse side is five panels of the witch doctor reveal that finish the chapter. What the hell, DC? A small coupon over a story is bad enough. This new yeah it's pretty egregious and and like you said we're seeing some repeating ads like these uh institute of electronics and all that and then now not only is it back but it's a full freaking page like that's the star ad of the issue they took out some money yeah that that jumped out at me it's not one of our spotlight ads but man for uh for one of those recurring ads it's it's really making a showing for itself so uh (laughs) so chapter two out of the way I guess I am going to take us in to chapter three. Is that my turn? Oh, is is it your turn? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So chapter two out of the way (laughs) and having heard enough from me, (laughs) we're going to let Rich close it all out here with chapter three. A riddle within a riddle. Seven pages. Sergeant Grebe catches Schlosser snooping. If he is slosher the major had always been suspicious of his miraculous escape from the americans the real slosser already knew that german psychologists could return the spirit of a dead man to his body the major had died six times already when nielsen asked how many times grebe had died grebe admits he hadn't yet the fallen ones sleep in a special barracks hero's home nielsen had subtly loosened his belt during this exchange and now whipped it out of his pants and knocked grebe's weapon out of his hands hang nielsen on hang then... on hang on are we not doing phrasing anymore <laughs> there's there's way too many jokes i could have dropped there so i'm just just letting it go <laughs> nielsen then strangles grebe with the belt his mission complete nielsen now has to escape but Grebe's body is quickly discovered. The doors are locked as the search for the intruder begins. A squad of zombie soldiers pursues Nielsen, who opens fire. Bullets don't stop them, so he runs. Surrender or die! Surrender or die! They chant. He finds the door marked Dr. Von Gruner, data center, entrance forbidden, and enters, simply to evade the pursuing zombies. It's a huge computer lab with TV screens. White-coated men on the floor below have been observing the chase and order a pursuit. The door is broken in and the zombies charge. Nielsen ducks the first one and heaves him over his shoulder. The German weighs a ton, just like the Major did. Nielsen discovers the truth. These guys aren't zombies. The robots! That's why they can take so much damage and they weigh so much. The whole thing is a massive con game. Nielsen jumps from the landing and lands on the main floor as Dr. Von Gruner pulls out a Luger and opens fire. Unfortunately, you learned the truth, Harry Nielsen, so we must kill you. You knew who I was from the start. You wanted me to learn about the zombies and report that back to U.S. intelligence. Yes, a two-sided game. We convinced the Blue Bolts that voodoo would keep them alive forever. Soon the whole German army will believe it cannot die. In time, my robots will replace them all. Then the German army will be death-proof. Nielsen loads his last clip, magazine actually, mini Killjoy, and kills Von Gruner. Realizing he doesn't have anywhere near enough ammo to destroy the robots, he instead opens fire on all the machinery in the room. Robot troops short-circuit and crash to the floor when the computers are destroyed. Nielsen escapes and returns to Allied lines, where the bandaged Colonel Hagen is waiting for him. Nielsen had deliberately missed when Hagen told him to shoot before. Nielsen peels off the German uniform as he debriefs the colonel. 
who chews Nielsen out for risking the whole operation by not killing him. You're all Nazi, he exclaims. But uh, Nielsen is the one standing there in his underwear. Of course, Harry, the actor, didn't know that a touch of insanity is government issue in The Weird War. Killjoy was here. Page 20, panel four. Colonel Higgins' shoulder epaulets look like he's a three-star general. And just like our complaint in episode six, that David and Goliath robot story, the tech for this story doesn't exist now, let alone close to 80 years ago. Hell, Nielsen is more impressed with the TV screen than he is about the robots. <laughs> so I guess the real reason the blue bolts don't leave anyone behind is that they didn't want the allies to discover German robots. And they were somehow going to let Nielsen escape after he discovered the zombie lab. As the chapter title says, a riddle and a riddle. Zombie soldiers! Page 15, panel 3. Arms up in the air and everything as they pursue Nielsen. And I dearly love the froosh sound effect as Nielsen jumps from the landing to the main floor. Oh, yeah. Choice sound effects in general. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. For mine, uh, I'll say, again, the chapter title lettering is much like the previous. Works just as well for me somehow. And, and as I said, the sound effects in general throughout the issue are just great. Uh, however, the riddle of this chapter for me is, do I really, really hate this chapter or not what the blue bolts are voodoo zombies wait they're robots no only one of them is a robot but the mastermind has a bunch of other robots in his hq except those robots act like zombies and yeah these robots are good enough to fool their fellow soldiers who know their human counterparts personally but tvs man wow i mean it's all really really stupid but I think I kind of love it. It turns around and, and it just, it embraces this panicked, desperate writing so, so hard that in the end, I just come to, to love the whole thing. It's a giant mess, but the speed at which it contradicts itself and reveals a new wrinkle and then gets rid of that one, I can't help. I can't help but dig it. So there we go. It wins me over. For the, for the art spotlight, uh, for me, it's all about the final panel on page 16 with the discovery of the robotic command center. It's, you know, just throwing in a James Bond movie archvillains headquarters vibe in with all the rest of this stuff. Why not? Make it weird, they said. That's just, yeah, it's so kitchen sinky that I, I couldn't help but just end up cheering along by the end of this. I mean, like, it is incredibly dumb. You even called out one, a contradiction that I missed in the storm of contradictions. Like, they were just... Did the whole, you know, genius plan was to let Nielsen get this far and then to let him get him. What? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's terrible, but I love it. I'll, I'll say more during the final turn during the final uh, got any last words part. So <laughs> it's before I before I, I spoil that here, we'll move on <laughs> to uh, one of our favorite uh, sections of any issue of Weird War Tales, the letters page, the APO Weird War Tales section. I am going to lead it off here with a letter from Carl Gafford of Brooklyn, New York. Carl's letter goes like this. Dear Joe, when Weird War first came out over two years ago, I didn't think the mag would last. The concept seemed too limited. The use of strange situations during times of war. Situations like that have been trampled to death on in shows like One Step Beyond, Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, etc. I did not think that such a format would last long in the monthly world of comics publishing. 
but I'm glad to be proven wrong. The latest issue was intriguing and thoroughly entertaining, thanks to the efforts of scripter Sheldon Mayer and artists De Zuniga and Alcala. I think I know what it was about this issue that made it a success. It was the use of love as a force behind the weird occurrences, not the usual gothic coincidences. It was their love for each other, which caused McBride and Suko to search for each other over and over, saving those soldiers' lives in the course of their search. The entire issue took on a more positive attitude with the emphasis on saving lives. This positive attitude worked very well and should be the only reason for a war book to explain the life-saving mission of the soldier rather than revel in romanticized battle tales. Carl Gafford, Brooklyn, New York. Now Joe Orlando responds and says, Dear Carl, thank you for your insight into number 14. And our position has always been to show the horror of warfare rather then it's glory. So that is uh, that's the letter and response day. And uh, as far as uh, what stood out to me from the letter, we have got Carl mentions uh, three weird TV shows. Twilight Zone, of course, I've seen. And Night Gallery, I've at least heard of. But to me, One Step Beyond is a song by the British ska band known as Madness. Also of Our House in the middle of our street fame. Uh, so, people of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and people of a certain age, if you've seen the show One Step Beyond, tell us about it. I mean, you know, I'm not going to do the research. I'm going to want to, but I'm going to forget to as soon as we stop recording. So help me out. And uh, uh, Carl and Joe make a great point about Weird War Tales trying to never glorify war. So take that, Isabella. Take it. Uh, get them started, folks. Don't get them started. It's just... <laughs> it's just I was just like, man, I just want to clip that out and send it to him. So instead Six of that, issues later, yeah. the bile still rising. Oh my God, <laughs> easily. So instead of letting me dwell on that, Rich, tell him what your letter spotlight is. Okay. Uh, Philip Lebrier, pretty sure that's how you say that, from Houston, Texas, sends in a pretty short one when he says, Dear Joe, Weird War number 14 was the best issue I have ever read. I am very glad to see the artists doing some research for a change. Details make a truly realistic story come alive. It was nice to see the right helmets on the soldiers, the right uniform on deck, and that lovely paratrooper with the mustache right out of the 1940s. Congrats. And the response is... Dear Philip, while our 14th issue attracted a lot of attention and comments, most of them quite favorable, as you can judge by the representative sampling on this page, the reason for enjoying The Ghost of McBride's Woman was certainly unique. Detail and research are a very important part of doing any type of historical comic, or Western, prehistoric, or whatever. And it's nice to know that our troubles are appreciated. Agreed. Tony D. did his homework on that one. A full-length story letter and a full-length story comic. And I just got a um, war comic history book from uh, Tomorrow's Publishing. I just got it started. And the first chapter talks about uh, EC Comics. And they're the ones that pretty much, you know, blazed the, you know, the field you know, as far as, you know, quality war books were concerned. And they were sticklers for you know, going to a library, doing the research, going go go, do, go down to the submarine down in the museum and check out the, the, what the submarine looks like, research the weapons, research the uniforms. And it just, they had it honed down to such a, such a laser focus. And it was such a popular part of the book that other publishers, you know, keyed in on that. And they're all like, 
oh, we should do that too, cough, cough, Russ Heath. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Mr. Killjoy here, you know, here obviously, I mean, I need to have, you know, get it right. For the love of God, get it right. So, yes, thank you, Tony D. So, Heck yeah. anyway. All right, so uh, Weird War Tales APO letters page out of the way. We're going to move right along into our spotlighted ads of the issue. Rich, hit them. Tell them what they've won, Johnny. Lots of goodies this ish. I finally selected glow spokes. Hey, kids, spark up your bike. Be the first on your block with glow spokes. Glow spokes snap on the wheels in seconds. No tools needed. And what a sparkling effect. Standing still or running around, you flash a dazzling display of color that makes your bike stand out from all the rest. Brightly colored by day, glow spokes make you safer and more visible at night. Money back guaranteed if you're not delighted. Just send $1.25 for postage and handling to Glow Spokes, Department 14046, 1044 Northern Boulevard, Boslin, New York. Rush me my glow spokes by return mail. <laughs> and all the other times we've talked about, I think I had this when I was a kid, bad comments from earlier episodes. I definitely remember snapping these out of the spikes of my, spokes of my bike. Didn't send away for them though. Probably find them, found them at Toys R Us or KB or something. Yeah, I wasn't that fancy when I was a kid. I didn't have the spokes. I, I saw kids with them, but at best all we had on our bikes for for nighttime adventures with those little discs those little red just discs you could snap on so i wasn't quite as cool looking as uh, someone with a whole uh, set of rainbow spokes spinning around i just had that one red dot on each wheel <laughs> yep. at best man most of the time i was just riding around in the dark with nothing <laughs> please don't run me over <laughs> take your chances kids go on so right after, um, for my ad, right after a glorious full-page ad for a super ta- a super-sized Tarzan comic, uh, we get this thing. It says, "Yours for one thirtieth the cost of diamonds, Capra gems, hand-cut, hand-polished, hand-selected." It, it's an ad for like synthetic diamonds that you can send away for for cheap, you know. Like, they're just as pretty. They're even prettier than real diamonds, they claim. And, you know, a one-carat unset diamond stone costs you approximately $1,000. A comparable choice selected one-carat Capra gem is yours for $37 and can be bought on small, easy payments. Let me tell you this right now, guys. You'll never get away with it. (laughs) You know, they're right, especially these days. Synthetic diamonds are cheaper. They look better. They're the same damn thing but you will never get away with it. So it says, get the facts now. And I just gave you the facts, but they say valuable illustrated booklet shows a wide selection of men's and women's rings, gives full details, including prices and settings, shows all Capra gems, actual size, limited supply. I thought you were making these though in the lab, but okay. Send today, no charge, no obligation. Get all the facts on Capra gems, more dazzling than diamonds. So and all throughout that entire ad, they never once mentioned the two words cubic zirconia. <laughs> no, they didn't. And, and so I, you know, and that's the first thing I thought of, of course, having grown up in a certain era, you know, that was the, the wonder, the wonder diamond replacement we heard about all the time. So I did some looking around and I couldn't find much about this company or their product other than appearances of this same ad 
going back as far as 1953 issues of Popular Science and Popular Mechanics magazines. I did, however, find this rather more modern ad, as in recent, for, and we'll put this picture in the Facebook, uh, Facebook album. This is an ad from, let's see here, the George Thompson Diamond Company. And they have one ring you can get called the Capra. And it's in the exact same font as the Capra Gems ad from this issue. And uh, like I said, going back to 1953 and appears to be using real diamonds instead of whatever the heck Capra Gems were. So I don't know if this is like the George Thompson Diamond Company's way of giving Capra Gems the raspberry or what, but it was just weird. And I, you know, I admit I know nothing about the jewelry industry. So maybe somebody out there knows all about the history of Capra Gems and why George Thompson's got something that is a, uh, Actually, their whole site seems to use this font for the Capra Gems ad throughout the entire website. Uh, so just, just strange. I, I was, I was just taken by also how ugly the ring is on the original Capra Gems ad. I mean, it's terrible, but <laughs> it looks like a yes, secret. Yes, it's it like is. a weapon that's going to channel the sunlight into a death ray. <laughs> this is the this is the ring Green Lantern uses if we can't find this real one. <laughs> Yeah, this is knockoff Green Lantern, man. Like it's you know, no offense, people, but it's this is the uh, the MLJ version, the uh, the Archie Red Circle version of Green Lantern, <laughs> the ring he's got on. So with enough fight started there, uh, we'll move on to the section we like to call "Got Any Last Words?" And I guess I'll lead it off here since I'm talking so much. <laughs> My last words are: This story made less and less sense as it went on until by the end. It was just complete unhinged gibberish. I think, however, it might be one of my favorite issues of Weird War Tales yet. <laughs> Sometimes sheer madness is just the way to go. And if you don't fight it, it could even turn out to be a lot of fun. And this issue, dear listeners, for me, was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, well, he has his opinion. I have mine. I like this, in this issue initially, but the more I reviewed it for this episode, the more plot holes I found. I mean, it was a pretty good effort for the first true full-length battle, battle tale, though we, we've had worse. Yeah, I knew we were going to be swinging on different sides of the pendulum on this one, especially at the end. I'm like, oh man, this thing is just a... This thing's rough. <laughs> it's rough. like 19 mine carts going off into an abandoned mine and then going, good, good luck. <laughs> fun storming the castle <laughs> <laughs> and you know me I, i'm a fan of chaos as long as it ends up enjoyable at the end so i was a sucker for this but i'm like man rich is going to be grumbling <laughs> and i so, am folks i yeah, really really am. He, he is he is you know so we'll, we'll move on to something that uh will we'll ameliorate that sting for rich because it's all about fanning our ego this is the dead letter office where we're going to talk about listeners who have liked shared commented and all that kind of fun stuff uh, for us. Yeah, about, uh, I see what you're doing there, about the show on social media. But first, <laughs> Dear listeners. we're going we're gonna to make a point of what Rich is very frantically highlighting in the script. Like, there's a lot of faith there that I'm looking at the script. But anyway, um, the fact that as of right now, as of two months before you hear this, we have swag, merch, stuff you can buy with our logo on it, over at redbubble.com just search weird warriors podcast or weird war 1983 as our artist name is called over there and you can put our awesome logo 
designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business and other projects and uh, just awesome art in general. You can get that logo on anything you can imagine. Uh, I already have it on a mug. I got a shirt coming. Rich has a COVID mask and uh, all <laughs> kinds of stuff coming. Like so far, we are our own best customers. And uh, I don't mind that one bit. So the whole reason that we started it was because we wanted to be able to buy our logo on stuff. But you can too. And all proceeds will go to paying the server fees and all that for Podbean and whatnot to keep the show going as our amount of content builds up, which who could have thought that was going to happen. So that bit of capitalism out of the way, we'll get on to uh, the uh, actual meat of the dead letter office here, which is about episode 16 covering weird war tales, number 14, which the letters in this issues APO weird war tales were also about. Look at that. It's synchronicity. It's serendipity. It's over on Twitter. <laughs> we, got, <laughs> we got FP Glasgow, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, and also of the Professor Frenzy show, The Telltale Mind, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, which that's just not, his, not just his name, people. He does an awesome blog on comics that um, is, it goes deep. It doesn't go for, it's, it, it's not too long. His posts are awesome. So Dave's comic heroes blog i haven't plugged him yet during the dead letter office so i figured i should this time around we got timothy d ayers we have our longtime supporter kirk spencer at big five army on twitter we've got coffee and comics mr uh, clinton robison we got dan brown at pack cells another longtime buddy here and speaking of that doc strange billy delicious on twitter and over on facebook we have billy d ranger gourd of the Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders vigilante podcast, which you guys, if you haven't listened to that yet, and you have any interest in old comics and, you know, lesser known DC characters. This is a, a dude who is a cowboy who rides a motorcycle fighting crime in the 40s and just listening to Ranger Gord's show about it will make you a fan of that comic. So go check it out. We got David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast. We have Tim DeForest. And Lloyd Smith, also known as Agent Groovy, who is the head honcho of Blue Moon Comics and uh, has his own website and blog and everything like that. But as I mentioned, Blue Moon Comics, they do their own books out there on drive through Comics and Indie Planet. Main title right now is called Diversions, and it's one of my favorite things going out there. I, I love Blue Moon Comics. Lloyd Smith is awesome. Check him out. Buy his books. All right. Okay, so over on Gmail, it's kind of a big deal, folks. We got our buddy Jason Zeller, who's been writing to us about every episode since he discovered the show, one after another. And guess what? He has caught up to us all, folks. As of this recording, his latest email was about Weird War Tales number 14. So we're going to officially award Jason the Binge Listener Award. Doesn't that just roll off the tongue? <laughs> Remember binge watching? This is binge listening. I like it. The Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, we're naming it after him. So the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. He is the inaugural recipient and the person after which the, the award is going to be named. So anybody else wants to step up and earn that, just start writing to us. We'll keep track. Uh, and then to honor Jason's dogged determination, let's read his emails 
about Weird War Tales number 13 and 14. So starting off, Jason says, Weird Warriors, The Diehards was a pretty good story until the ending to me. It was notably hard to watch the Nazis systematically killing the civilians day after day. It seems the older I get, the harder it is to see things like that. I honestly thought the reveal was going to be that the vampires were the children of some other family members of the townspeople. It was both surprising and somewhat disappointing <laughs> to see that the whole town were vampires. My main questions were, what does a town of vampires eat? How do that many people sustain themselves? And also, how do they survive during the daylight? I, I, we're with Enjoy. you, Jason. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're with you on that one. Uh, this, uh, Jason goes on to say, the samurai story had a shocking ending, and I was really shocked that they hung the child as well. That was a rough final image. Loser's luck really made me think back to the fear growing up in the 1980s that nuclear war would annihilate most of the planet. The day after movie and Terminator nuclear explosion effects really haunted me. Another fear was that we would be hurled 50,000 years back into the Stone Age and that life would be untenable. Ironic ending, but overall, the story seemed to be missing something. Thanks, Rich, for the update on Sue Glansman. I'm glad you're still there to help her out. Awesome that you're still keeping up with her. Make war no more. Jason. And Jason writes in about Weird War Tales number 14. He says, Weird Warriors, I enjoyed WWT number 14. That was a very imposing cover. I wonder if the paratroopers felt this way, like death, as they jumped off the planes into the unknown. I can't imagine their feelings. Yeah, man, neither could I. I'm never doing that for no reason, unless I'm in a plane that's on fire. So <laughs> Jason goes You happen to have a parachute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they have, I actually get one of the parachutes, which is, you know, how likely is that? So <laughs> Jason goes on to say, I really did enjoy this story with the connecting husband and wife ghosts. Though we did not really know them long enough before they died, their obstinate personalities to not give up and their love for each other and duty to the cause seemed to carry them along until they accomplished finding each other again. It was great to see them helping the war effort everywhere they went until they finally met up. I did not understand how ghosts were able to affect their physical environment, such as setting off mines or bandaging a busted leg. The important thing was that they were determined to help with the war effort everywhere they were needed, even in the afterlife, and eventually found each other again. I also like the idea of death being a little slow and bringing some souls to the afterlife to finish their unfinished business. I think they were definitely able to make a difference for the soldiers they helped before they left to the spirit world. As for the letters page, Guy, I hear you. Apparently, there has always been a subset of toxic fandom, probably in all entertainment. I appreciate Joe Orlando for printing the letter and for his professional response. Definitely, that was class right there. While there have been stories I may not have enjoyed as much, I think there is a better way to go about it. Specifically, constructive criticism versus name-calling using colorful language. Being able to articulate what you did not like in a professional manner is the best way. P.S. I am finally caught up with the podcast. Make war no more, Jason. So there you Until go. two days from now when the next episode drops. <laughs> Yeah, but Jason has been so on it, man. Like, I, I, I dread when he starts listening to other shows because A, he's going to find out we're not as good as he thinks we are. And <laughs> B, he'll, um, you know, he'll be in my situation sooner rather than later where you've got such a backlog, it's insane. But right now, I think we're the show he is listening to. So he'll be right, right on it. Uh, so that does it for a pretty awesome dead letter office. And as usual, once we're done with that, Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for what's next. 
Weird War Tales number 20. It's what you're here for. Cowards, witch doctors, portents of death, and a letter in APO Weird War Tales we've been waiting for. I'm talking to you, Lee Sullivan. Tune in or don't. We'll be here either way. Unless Max fires me. Or unless Rich finally finds a way to replace me with software. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we, we, have a, we have a listener with a big spotlight in this episode, and we have a listener next time around that's going to be in the issue. It's just awesome. So until we get to that episode, people, this is the Weird Warriors podcast. We are the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war no more. 